to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 11, and today we're going to talk about the Lacey Act. Yes, the infamous United States Lacey Act, passed by Senator John Lacey in 1900. The Lacey Act really started as a protection of wildlife. It wasn't until 2008 that it was flora and fauna were considered, and the lumber industry really became under the purview of the Lacey Act. You see, in 1900, it was really not so much about protecting animals, but protecting specifically birds. The fashion at the time involved lots of feathers. Hats had feathers on them. And next person, you know, would buy another hat and try to one-up the the person who had the hat before them, and they'd have an even bigger feather. And then the next hat would be bought and have an even bigger feather. And I kid you not, it got to the point where entire birds were on top of people's heads. And all I can think of is that Dr. Seuss book, Go Dog Go. You know, do you like my hat? No, I do not like your hat. Throughout the book, do you like my hat? No, I do not. And then finally the dog shows up with like the Chiquita banana lady hat, fruit on her head. And he's, yes, I like that hat. Great, let's go to a party. That's what it was. You know, it was like a little sparrow feather. And then the next hat had like, a blue jay feather. And the next hat had a freaking eagle feather on it. And the next thing, there was an entire eagle wing. And the next, there was an entire eagle. And birds were being killed off just wholesale for the fashion industry. And many species of birds in North America were almost completely run into extinction. Well, actually, several of them were run into extinction. Others got very, very close. And it was the Lacey Act that said, whoa, 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 we've got to figure out a way to police this and slow this down and make sure this doesn't happen. So fast forward 100 years, more than 100 years, 108 years to 2008, Suddenly, lumber was brought under this. And it was really interesting that it actually took that long because today, when we look at the Lacey Act, it's mostly about the lumber trade. And, you know, the other stuff kind of takes a backseat to it. Now, granted, that's coming from my world where I work in the lumber trade, so we feel like it's mostly about us. But where everything you see in the news with Lacey really revolves around the lumber trade. So it is kind of interesting that for more than 100 years, lumber actually wasn't even under the purview of it. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife administers this. And if you remember a couple episodes ago, you know, it's funny that I was talking about birds. There are two blue jays out my window, like fighting right now. So if you hear that noise in the background, that's them voicing their support of the Lacey Act. I find that really appropriate. Anyway, several episodes ago, I talked about CITES and how CITES sets forth the convention that says these species are endangered or these species are threatened to become endangered and therefore trade should be regulated. But if you remember, I said CITES does not have an enforcement arm. It has no teeth. It can set out all the laws and say this is bad, but it cannot say, you know, slap your wrist. The slapping of the wrist is up to the individual governments, wherever that material is brought into, wherever that material is exported from, it's those governments that must enforce it. They're the ones that have the teeth. The teeth in the United States, as far as the United States is concerned, is the Lacey Act. U.S. Fish and Wildlife is the the agency behind this. They're the ones that enforce it. They're the ones that show up with the flak jackets and shut you down if you are in violation of the Lacey Act. What's interesting about the Lacey Act, and you know, I, I'm sure this exists elsewhere, but this is U.S. federal law whose entire role is to interpret foreign law. Because what the Lacey Act says is if any material that you are importing is in violation of a local law 
at this, the point of origin. So say you're bringing in rosewood from Indonesia. If an Indonesian law says requires something with that rosewood or says that rosewood uh, is, is illegal to export, U.S. Lacey says it is now illegal in the United States. So the law itself, Lacey has actual no law, no regulations. All it says is that it depends upon where the, the material is coming from. So it's interpreting all the local laws and not just federal laws, but state and local laws in wherever that may come from. There may be a a village shaman somewhere that says, no, you can't do this with that particular wood. And technically that is in violation of Lacey. So you can imagine this gets really, really hairy as a lumber importer, as a lumber consumer. How do we know? Like there's so many things, so many variables, so many laws that could come into play. And nine times out of 10, the law is not, this is illegal, you can't export it. But mostly it's, it can only be exported in a certain format. Um, logs cannot be exported. It must be exported in board form. Or what usually happens is the local law requires a certain percentage of transformation. Cutting down the tree there's no transformation there. It's just a log. Well, sawing that that log into boards is a certain percentage of transformation. Then taking those boards and drying them, taking those boards and milling them from rough into S4S is further transformation. So say there's a, 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 a local province that says there's got to be 40% transformation before it leaves the port. So th- this is really where it comes down. Certainly there are there are some laws that say, no, you can't, can't even cut down that tree. You certainly cannot export that species, can't do anything at all. But more often than not, it's about that transformation. And it's these local governments that are trying to keep more and more of the work on shore. Crazy, right? They want more jobs for their citizens. They're trying to get more and more of that piece of the pie rather than just shipping the logs out. Because if you've ever bought a log, heck, if you've bought firewood, it's dirt cheap, right? Compared to going to a lumberyard and buying kiln-dried boards, so, so much more expensive than firewoods because there's been no labor put into it. Certainly felling the tree, getting it out of the forest and getting to a port is some labor, but it's very little. And there's there's so much more that gets done downstream that adds to the value of that. So a lot of these countries are looking at that and saying, hey, we're you know, we're giving it away. We could be making more money if we did more of this work. So if the local law is passed that says more and more transformation has to happen in our borders, then we get more of that piece of the pie. The problem with this is in many instances, this law is passed and there's actually no industry set up in order to handle this. We saw this recently in Myanmar when the um, military dictatorship uh, was finally overthrown and they went to a democratic government and the embargoes were lifted and all that stuff. Immediately, there was a log export ban on teak. No teak logs can be exported. There is a certain transformation that needs to be done. And what that transformation uh, came down to percentage wise is only boards could now be exported, no longer logs. And they started to say kiln dried boards. Well, the problem was is there was like one kiln <laughs> in all of Myanmar and very few sawmills. For 50, 100 years prior to that, all the logs were being exported out of Myanmar or Burma back then to Java, to Indonesia, and they were being sawn into boards there. Because the fact of the matter is, is shipping logs from the South Pacific is still very, very expensive, especially when you consider the the amount of water weight in a log and the amount of waste in a log. If you're going to pay for weight in a shipping container on an ocean liner, you want 
as little amount of waste as possible and as little amount of water weight as possible. So all of the buyers were buying boards anyway, in many instances that have been dried to a European standard. So you could get more good quality material in many instances, graded material in the shipping container, and you're getting more for what you're paying for. But all of that sawing into boards was being done outside of Myanmar. So when they said suddenly no more log export, Everybody started looking around going, okay, well, are you going to saw it? No, I'm not going to saw it. I've never sawn it. What are you going to do? And suddenly they realized there was nobody there with not only the machinery, but the expertise. If you've ever seen a log being sawn, there's a lot to it. You know, sometimes you can just through saw it, but you know, there's, there's a real art to getting the best yield for the log, especially when you've got an importer that is saying, I want a certain spec. I, I want a certain amount of quarter to a certain amount of rift, or I want FEQ or FAS. Sawing for the grade is a real art form and requires a lot of experience. And there was no one who was able to do this. So it kind of backfired. And there's been a lot of upheaval there. Long story short, the importers and many of those sawmills that were in Indonesia, many of them were actually Myanmar nationals who had left the country because of that military di- dictatorship. They just went home and then they moved their business there and set things up. And there was a little bit of turnover as things kind of as business got set up and knowledge was transferred and employees were trained and all that stuff. But the good news is now when you look at Myanmar and you look at the teak trade, it's so much healthier than it was even 10 years ago because it can sustain itself inside the borders of Myanmar. And we're finding that the quality of the teak that we import is so much better. Um, And in many instances, you've seen U.S. and North American industries going over there and, and training and advising and getting these sawmills and these kilns and everything set up to improve the quality of the material being export. So there's a happy ending there. The the local law that says this transformation has to happen or here on our shores, it's against the law by U.S. Lacey that's forced more industrialization, more training, more, I don't know, modernization. I don't know if that's the word I really want to use there, but just better prepared industry producing a better product. And that's certainly been a good thing. The converse of that, we look at Africa. Many of the African countries, especially in the interior of Africa, it does not behoove them at all to set up any kind of sawing. All the sawing really needs to be done at the port. And because of, you know, volatile governments, because of lack of road structures, because of lack of industry, it's just easier to just get the logs and export the logs into um, coastal uh, Cameroon and, and Ivory Coast coastal regions where the ports actually are. That causes a bit of problem because these logs are showing up in these port areas. And then it's, well, where is the point of origin? Is the point of origin somewhere deep in the Congo or is the point of origin Guyana or Cameroon or something like that? And these need to be considered as well. And Lacey does think about this. There is transformation of product from that actual where the stump is. There's also transformation of product at the port. All of these things have to be considered. Every step along that supply chain has to be considered. Here's where things get a little sticky with the Lacey Act. Lacey specifically says, use due care. That, that's a direct quote, due care. You see that used a lot. It's very purposely, ambiguously worded. So there is no step one, step two, step three, fill out this form, fill out this 1099 and this 1040EZ and this 1040A and this 1199-7B. They don't really have those. It's 
a law that says exercise due care, exercise really ask questions. What does Lacey want? Lacey wants us to start asking questions. And I've talked about this before when it, uh, when it comes to CITES and when it comes to just talking to your, your suppliers about where does the material come from. As you're buying wood from abroad, where did it come from? Well, it came from Cameroon. Well, did it really? Um, Or is that just the port that it shipped from? And you can look at the paperwork and see, oh, well, actually, no, the log came from, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Okay, well, where in the Congo? What concession did it come from? That information is there. The chain of custody will be there. You ought to be able to trace it, in which case you have to trace it all the way back and then look at every regionality it touched until it hit the water, until it hit the ocean, and what kind of local laws needed to be adhered to. That can be very, very difficult to do. And and really what you need to do is be building relationships with the suppliers abroad. This is the job of the importer. For the average consumer of lumber that's not doing the importing, you just need to seek out a good importer. You know, there are importers of record. There are brokers. There are brokers that bring material in really kind of sight unseen and just kind of ship it out of a out of a shipping crate at the port. They don't really know what they've bought. Then there are importers of record who actually sell the lumber that maintain inventory like the company that I work for and, and many others like us who actually have bought a specific lot of material, know what's going to be in there, are going to do some additional transformation, like we're going to do some additional drying, we're going to do some grading, we're going to do some sawing, milling, et cetera, to that material. Buying from a company like that, you can have a lot more trust that those laws have been adhered to, that it's made it into the country, that it's been inspected at the port, that we have continually been audited by the U.S. government to make sure that we are exercising due care. How we exercise due care is anytime we have a new supplier, a new vendor abroad, we do our homework. You know, you check references, you go to them, you visit them wherever they are. You visit their sawmills, you visit their concessions, you look at their concession plans, you look at their forestry practices, you look at how they transport those logs from the forest to a sawmill. You look at how they're actually sawing them into boards and you consult with them about, well, this is the kind of material that we want. Can you saw it that way? Yes, no. Okay, let's see. Let's watch you do it. Are you going to dry it? Let me see your kilns. Let's inspect your kilns. It's Basically, the same vetting process you would do with any purchase that you make. I mean, today we can go on Amazon and we look at lots of reviews. We can go on social media channels and see what other people are saying about it. We can watch videos about that product being reviewed by independent people. There's lots of stuff that we can do digitally. Obviously, that gets to be really hard when you're talking about a material that comes out of the forest in third world countries. But it is really the same process of going there to the country, making these visits and periodically dropping in and making sure those standards are still in place. In many instances, uh, the company I work for and others actually employ agents on the ground. There are many agents that that serve as third party auditors who work for several different companies and they will present to us. Here is a company that is, say, uh, selling eBay decking and um, they would like to sell some to you. Here's what I've done. I've gone, I've looked at the material, I've, I've tested it for dryness, I've looked at the grade, I've looked at their sawing practices, here's some of their paperwork, you know, they're doing that stuff for us. We will then go every now and then and visit that company ourselves and, and kind of verify the work that our auditor has done. But for the most part, that auditor gives us kind of a head start. Instead of having to start from scratch and do a whole bunch of homework, the auditor has that local knowledge and we can quickly 
get the the wheat from the chaff and say, okay, instead of going to Africa or going to Brazil and visiting 20 different companies, we go and visit two because a lot of that work has already been done. And there's something to be said about that local insight and knowledge. Talk to any woodworker who has lived in an area for a while and say, well, where do you buy your lumber? And there may be a couple of lumber yards, but they've always got one or two other guys that they talk to or one or two other guys or sources. Everybody's got a guy, right? And everybody knows, well, you know, yeah, there's this lumber yard over here, but I don't really buy from him much because he doesn't have a lot of good quality walnut or his prices are a bit high. That local knowledge is really, really important. Plus, when you're talking about some of these uh, Latin American countries and even African countries, you take a white gringo (laughs) like myself and many of the people I work with and drop them in the middle of the forest and the people don't talk to them. You know, you won't get information out of them unless you are a local yourself. So having an agent on the ground that not only speaks the language, but is is accepted culturally can get you a really big head start. And that's kind of one of the ways you have to do exercise your due care. So, again, this is for most people listening to this are not going to be importing lumber. But the key here is understanding kind of the steps that an importer of record needs to go through in order to ensure that they are LACI compliant. So as a consumer, you ought to feel comfortable being able to ask some of these questions. Where did it come from? Or, you know, what are you doing to ensure you're LACI compliant? How are you vetting this stuff? And generally, you can get a good feel for the company you're working for and know that as a consumer, I'm buying the right stuff. What's difficult is, as I said, the ambiguity of it goes both ways. Interpreting what due care is can work in the government's favor or it can work in an individual company's favor. You can say, hey, I did my due care. You know, what we say... um, around McIlvain where I work is kind of, can you look yourself in the mirror and go, yes, I did everything. I feel good about this. I don't have any nagging gut feeling that this is necessarily a bad thing. There are lots of documents and steps that you can go through. If you are interested in, in building um, a compliance practice for, for, U.S. Lacey compliance, if you visit IWPA.org, that's the International Wood Products Association, they have a class for um, Lacey compliance. It was actually uh, put together and written by Caroline McIlvain, my boss, and it's it's a really good program to kind of get you started on things. There have been some guidelines that have happened through actual fish and wildlife action, like uh, when Gibson Guitar was shut down because of a Lacey violation on some rosewood, they um, did kind of a plea bargain deal. And created a Lacey compliance program for Gibson. And it was the first instance where this happened. So there was a legal precedent set and the U.S. government said, you know, okay, you're good now. Like, you know, wrist has been slapped. There's a fine. You need to have this compliance program. Gibson put it together and the U.S. government approved it. So we finally had kind of a a template, if you will. But even if you look at, and you can find this, actually, it's on Gibson's website, but you actually also can find it on the McIlvain blog because we talked about that template and talked about how what McIlvain does and how it, how it adheres to that. Even that template you'll find is particularly vaguely worded. It's a lot of, again, using that do care. It's a lot of do your research, build relationships. You know, there is no fill out this form again, do this step. You know, it's it's all very kind of touchy feely. But think about it. It's the same as any business arrangement you go into. You have to have a good feeling the company you're working for. You know, are you being sold a line? Maybe, maybe not. But how do you feel about the integrity of the people you're working with? Are they giving you consistent answers? Are they free with their answers? Or do you feel like they're hiding something? And that's really what it comes down to. And that's what do care is. But 
surprisingly, it goes a really, really long way. Because of that ambiguity, we're kind of always continually asking questions from the importers all the way down to the the hobbyist woodworkers always asking questions and that's what us lacy is all about now if you are found in violation of the lacy act then yeah things are going to get seized things are going to get shut down people are going to be out of jobs fines are going to be levied there's all kinds of nasty specters of, of things that can happen to you but it's not really what the lacy act is about it's not about threatening people Maybe it is. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'm in a good mood today. Um, It's really about fostering questions, just not accepting where this stuff comes from, just finding out, well, tell me more about where it comes from. How is it being harvested? How is it being shipped? How is it being transported? What kind of transformation of product has happened to this and why? And, you know, there's there's a good example here. Um, A lot of the the like turning blanks, really, really unusual species, rosewoods, Dal, you know, Dalbergias, uh, ebonies, some of the, the crazy exotic stuff that you never are going to really find in large board format, but you'll often find them in like pool cue size blanks and things. Those are heavily regulated. In many instances, those are CITES listed species. The, the amount of material being exported is very, very small, but in many instances, the level of transformation, that percentage of transformation is also quite high. So um, for instance, I was at Bell Forest Products in Michigan uh, last, what, in June, and we were looking at, oh, I don't remember the species, some kind of rosewood. It might've been an Indian rosewood, um, but it had little like one inch square tenons on the end of each turning blank. So picture like a pepper mill blank, a two by two by 18 inch long pepper mill blank with a little one inch by one inch tenon on the end. That was a transformation of work product. This had been sawn out of a log. It had been sawn into billets, two by two blanks. It had been dried. It had had the ends waxed, but that still wasn't enough transformation to meet the local law. So then they took it to a mill house and they cut a tenon on the end. Now joinery has been cut into that, and there's a greater amount of transformation to be done in order to legally export that. Now that may seem like a kind of a gerrymander the situation. Oh, we found a loophole. Yes and no, but in this particular instance, it just goes to show there's one more step to make sure that this is being done legally. Now, many times a company like Bell Forest may get that lumber and then saw off that little tenon and reseal the end. Or you might actually buy uh, something from them and you'll find that little tenon on the end. It's just another example of a transformation of product. We get probably hundreds of examples each week of something that comes in from overseas that has a single saw cut on it. And that was enough to make that percentage of work um, meet to be lacy compliant. So it, it maybe in some ways it's a loophole, but in other ways it shows that here's a company that's very aware of their local laws and recognizes that this stuff has to be done in order to be compliant. Because if we ship, if we, some African company ship something to North America, that's not lacy compliant, that material will get seized. Our customer will be unhappy. Our customer will want a refund we may get investigated by the local government. It kind of affects everybody. There may be no repercussions to that African company other than the fact that they just ticked off a U.S. customer who's not going to buy from them and is going to tell all their other U.S. US colleagues not to buy from them because they got nabbed from a Lacey violation. So it kind of, it, 
it's that do care thing that the social proof that builds around it allows companies to, to forces companies, as you say, to do the right thing. Because if they don't, they're going to get found out and people are going to start talking and say, I don't buy from them anymore. Another example we find with Teak is depending upon where the Teak is actually coming from in Myanmar, in some instances in Indonesia, there's a higher level of transformation that needs to be possible. And dependent upon the product you're looking for, if you're looking for just regular boards, you know, FEQ boards, six to eight inches wide or whatever, there's generally no issue hitting those, those work transformation numbers. But if you want a live edge slab, say you want to make a big conference table and you need a 22 foot long by 36 inch wide, two live edge slab, there is not enough transformation of product happening there to make it possible. So we had a customer that came to us that that's exactly what they wanted um, for um, a customer. They needed a, a teak table like that. We went over to Myanmar with several of our suppliers and we actually had these slabs sawn from the log for them. We looked at it and said, there's not enough transformation here. So what we did is we had the sawmill actually build those slabs into a table. And, you know, not a not a fancy table because some of the other stuff that was in the shipment were some larger posts and things like that. So we literally took the top slab and uh, cut some tenons on these posts and tenoned them into the bottom of the slab, took the bottom slab and made it like a shelf on the lower section. And then you had a table, a table that looked closer to a packing crate than anything else, but it was still a table. And that bumped that transformation of product up enough to make it legal and LACI compliant. So again... It sounds a little bit like a loophole, and maybe it is, but it's still showing that we're asking questions. We're thinking about this stuff. We're looking at the local laws and making sure that things are compliant. Otherwise, we're going to get nabbed. And that really, really expensive teak, those wide slabs, are going to get seized. And those things are not exactly easy to find these days. So it's yet another thing to to kind of look at from the company you're buying from. Do they do this type of thing with the lumber that they're buying from? Now, the flip side of this transformation of product is, we'll just call it lumber laundering. <clears throat> there are, everybody's aware of the whole reclaimed movement. You know, let's, let's use these old barns and use reclaimed lumber. And that's great stuff and it tells a great story. That can go the other way because when it's reclaimed, it's kind of almost exempt from a lot of those local laws. So we're finding organizations now that are selling, I'm going to keep picking on teak, um, reselling reclaimed teak and, you know, big, big market for that right now. But what they're doing is actually sawing a bunch of boards from regions or excuse me, sawing, felling trees and sawing those trees into boards from regions that are not quite legal building houses out of them locally, like little shanty towns locally tearing them down six months later and calling them reclaimed. So technically it is reclaimed lumber because it used to be a building, but it's not like a hundred year old building. It's a six month old building that was built in country where there was you know no need to pass any borders to do any export or anything like that. And it's a way to actually launder that material. And we're seeing this pop up more and more. In China, they're felling trees that are illegal, building them into furniture right there in the sawmill towns and shipping them out. 
because it's already furniture. And that furniture as an actual transformed product is not getting a second glance, where if you were shipping boards or shipping logs, it would get seized immediately, or at least it would get checked a lot more. The furniture is not getting checked in the slightest. And there's CITES regulated material that's being made into furniture and shipped without a second glance. Now, some of that is being cracked down on, but it, it is a laundering process. You know, that original illegal material is being laundered into something else. So if you are very interested in the reclaimed market or the, the, any of the, the, the green material type market, be careful. And again, what does the U.S. Lacey Act want us to do? It wants us to ask questions. Where did this material come from? If you're buying reclaimed, what's the most obvious question? What was it reclaimed from? Tell me the story because that's part of it, right? That's one of the reasons reclaimed material is so much more expensive because there's this cool story. And if you look at the companies that do it right, you know they'll have a picture of the barn that it came from and when the barn was erected and when the material was, it was taken out and kind of approximate dates. And that's all really cool. And it adds to the character of that piece that you're going to build out of that reclaimed reclaimed lumber. That's what you want to know, right? When you're buying reclaimed material, what was it reclaimed from? If you're not getting straight answers and it is an exotic material like that, I would be very cautious about that. So again, that's kind of a caveat that the whole reclaimed or we're also seeing some of the plantation stuff isn't quite as eco-friendly as one might think. And they're skirting some of those local laws, which would put them in violation of the Lacey Act. Okay. (laughs) That was a mouthful. Um, You know, Lacey, what it comes down to is it's not that big of an issue for the average consumer, the average hobbyist, or even the average contractor. It's more of a concern for the lumber yards that are stocking the material and the people who are importing and bringing it in. But if you are concerned about the legality of your material, or if you're just wanting to vet a company before you buy from them, there are some questions you can ask. So let me know if you have additional questions. This was kind of a rambly episode, but as I said, Lacey's kind of ambiguous. It's a little hard to put your finger on exactly what to do other than just keep asking questions and document everything and make sure that you have got a file of things that show I've asked all these questions, I made these visits, I did all these things so that should you ever get audited or should the fish and wildlife show up, you can say, look, we exercise due care. That's it for me, folks. Thanks for listening and um, go buy some wood, please. Legal wood.